It is the John Saxon Story Podcast, and I am your host, Jenny Hatch. My guest today is Nikki Hayes, the author of John Saxon Story. Nikki, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jenny. Glad to be back. We are reading her wonderful book, John Saxon Story, chapter by chapter, week by week. This week, we are going to be covering chapter three, which is titled A New Insight. The subheading is, I really didn't think I was going to graduate. And this is John talking about his experience at West Point in 1949. We will get to that in a moment. First, I want to share my math story because I think it is illustrative of my generation. I'm 54 years old. I started in the public schools in Berkeley, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit, when I was five. I started at Pattengill Elementary School in 1973, and I had the typical 70s scholastic experience in the sense that they used the classic whole language Dick and Jane books for my reading curriculum, and I was somewhat befuddled as I tried to learn how to read because of the word sight word method which has caused so much dyslexia and other problems in so many children. It's actually quite staggering to think about that side of education. I recently crossed paths with someone whose child was diagnosed dyslexic, and it cost her $4,000 to get the latest dyslexia test conducted on her child to find out how severely damaged that she was. And there are big bucks in remediation. We've talked about this in our show last week, that it is a billion-dollar-a-year industry teaching remedial math and reading to students all over the country, all over the world. And nobody has the will to confront the remediation side of things, uh, except for pendant voices like John Saxon and Nikki Hayes, and others who have bravely stood up. And I'm thinking of Rupert Fleisch with his classic book, Why Johnny Can't Read, which if you want to understand the phonics side of things, read that book. 25 years after he wrote that book, he wrote a second book, Why Johnny Still Can't Read. Excellent book. Nothing had changed, only gotten worse. And then the works of Sam Bloomfeld, who's one of my favorite authors. I used his alpha phonics in my own homeschool, teaching my children how to read, and it was excellent curriculum. He's passed away as well, but his, his stuff is out there, and it's some of the best on the market. But as a young kindergartner, I was taught using whole language reading and 60s era new math, which, as John has pointed out, teaches math in chunks. You get a chunk of math here, a chunk there. I did manage to learn basic arithmetic, and when I was in the fifth grade, we moved to a school district across town. The Birmingham School District was a better funded district than Berkeley. They had all of this newfangled stuff in that school. I started in the sixth grade at Bingham Farms Elementary and then moved to Berkshire Middle School in Birmingham, and for two years, I was considered a top student. I was in accelerated math, pre-algebra in the eighth grade, and on track to do high-level math 
in high school, at Groves High School. My family experienced serious economic troubles when I was in the eighth grade, and we had to move to a less funded school, Farmington Hills Public Schools, where I spent the ninth grade. And that year, I was depressed. I went through a deep depression. I missed my friends from my other district, and our home life was troubled. And I hardly went to school. When I did go, I would often skip class. And at the end of that year, I had been in several musicals and plays and participated on the basketball team and the mime club. But my academics were all my core classes, D minus. And because that school had a policy of passing you no matter what your grades are, I passed my ninth grade year. But uh, D minus in all of my English math. And even though I think my algebra teacher was pretty good, um, I was not motivated at all that year, hardly did my homework. And as we all know, with math, you have to do your homework every day. And so from that failure experience of having a year of failure where I was laughing at them because they passed me, I should have been required to repeat the ninth grade. They also graduated my older brother, who was also uh, somewhat troubled in his behavior. He managed to graduate from that high school, and he almost never went to school, really struggling in his life with drugs and alcohol. And so my parents bought a house out in Wald Lake, and we ended up at the Wald Lake School District. And I remember having a conversation with my dad, and he said, do you want to go to college? And I was like, I don't know, I guess so. And he said, well, things have to change or you're not going anywhere. And so I buckled down and started over again with algebra ninth grade class as a 10th grader. I was the only 10th grader in that class. My sister and her husband-to-be were in that class. And I was in this class with two ninth, ninth graders. It was very embarrassing to be in a class that was not, you know, with my grade level. But I just, you know, buckled down and did my homework every day. And I came out top grade in the class. I think I was almost A plus with that algebra class. And then in 10th grade, I signed up for a geometry class, which was what my school expected, and very quickly realized that I was not prepared to do the accelerated geometry as a junior. And so I dropped the class and I took another English class. And my high school, I was able to graduate from my high school without any more math. They did not require it and I just didn't sign up for it. And so my junior and senior years, I did not take math. I did pretty well academically. I took a couple of AP classes, biology and European history. And that AP European history class is and was the most difficult class I have ever taken, including college work. And I graduated from high school with like a 3.5 GPA. When I took the ACT, my math score was a 15 which I'm so embarrassed to admit, but it's the truth. And it was weighed a little bit the other direction by my history and language arts skills, which took my final score up to a 22. So I ended up high school with about, you know, a B average, B plus, and a 22 on the ACT. Not exactly high caliber college material, but I had ambitions. And I figured if I was going to go 
to a university, I wanted to do honors level work. And so I applied to Wayne State University, which had one of the best theater departments in the world, which is right down, downtown Detroit. And because my dad really wanted me to, I applied to BYU out in Provo, Utah, which is a school that's affiliated with my church. And so I waited to hear what would, what would happen. Would I even get in? Because my, my grades weren't that, that great. If I was applying today, I would not have gotten in. It's gotten so much more academically rigorous to get into that school that you pretty much have to have a top ACT score and, you know, just really good grades to get into BYU. But back in the 80s, this was 86, what do you know, I managed to get into BYU. I determined that I was going to go early, like six days after I graduated from high school, I wanted to be at school because I was antsy to get out. I wanted to get on my own. I wanted to start my adult life and just move forward. And so I set up to go to summer school, 1986, and my mom and my sisters drove me out to school and I'm just back in the game of, of school, right? Six days after I graduated. I did not take any math. I was nervous about taking math. Instead, I loaded up my classes with theater classes, music classes. I took a lot of dance. And then in the fall semester, I took what's called a colloquial class, which this was nine credit class that covered three of your general eds, but you were with the same professor with the same group of kids. And it was like 90 kids in the class. And I had called the head of the honors department, explained to him about my freshman year, how I did so poorly. Our family was struggling. I really wasn't academically focused and it really influenced everything that happened after that with my high school, especially math, but really with everything. He was so sympathetic to my story. He said, you know, you sound great. Why don't you, why don't you just go ahead and sign up for our honors classes? He said, I, we found that even some of these kids who have the top scores are not necessarily the smartest people in the in the honors program. And I think you sound like you would do really well. And so he invited me to join the honors program, to move into the honors dorm in the fall, and to attend the, foner, the honors. Um, they had like a little three-day conference that the kids showed up early before the rest of the student body and had three days of all sorts of activities. And during that, they had a talent show. And I was like, oh, sign me up for that. With my musical theater, back theater background, I did a stand-up comedy routine around this bike that my mother had bought for me at the Deseret Industries, which is like the equivalent of a thrift store in Utah. And this, this bike was a, just a piece of junk. And I almost died several times crashing, crashing it around campus. So I did this riff on my mom buying me this bike from DI. And that was my stand-up comedy routine for the freshman talent show and it was fun and uh and then I started out taking all these high level honors classes which they were difficult they were really hard I also took Russian 101 which is a five credit class I don't know what I was thinking but I had 18 and a half credits that first semester and just was like well if I'm going to do school I might as well do it all the way and I very quickly realized I had to drop that Russian class because it was just too much homework. I was also in a couple of musicals. Funny Girl, I played Mrs. O'Malley, and I did several Mass Club one acts with uh, students who were in grad programs learning how to become theatrical directors. And I really loved participating in the, the choirs, and 
I, I went dancing almost every night. There was always a dancer on campus. And I had a ball that year at BYU. In January, I, I auditioned for several summer stock companies and managed to get cast at the Playmill Theater in West Yellowstone, Montana, and was hired to do summer stock for four months. And that was great because I earned 12 credits of theater doing that because they were affiliated with BYU at the time. And then I came home to Michigan because I was out of money and I was tired and I'd been away for over a year. And what do you know, I meet my husband three weeks after I get home. And we fell in love and decided to get married. And I, I never went back to BYU. I got married in March of 1988. We got pregnant on our honeymoon. And what do you know, we're off with family life. And that's how my life has gone ever since. It's like we've been dancing through life, just jumping from one thing to another. During that summer of my first pregnancy, my mother-in-law said, hey, do you want to go to school? We'd be happy to, to pay for a few classes if you want to just go to the local community college. So I thought, what the heck? You know, that sounds great. So I signed up for Oakland Community College. We called it OCC, only last chance or something like that. In high school, we made fun of the kids who went to community college. But here I was at community college as a 20-year-old, pregnant, expecting my first baby, and I signed up for the dreaded college algebra. And I was nervous, again, to take a math class because it had been a couple years since I was a sophomore in high school, since I had taken any math. And it was concentrated because it was a summer term. I went four hours a day, four days a week for a summer term. And my teacher was fabulous. I remember this lady, she just knew how to teach. And I had a good textbook and I had a wonderful tutor at home in the form of my, my husband, Paul. He was very smart and he's a computer engineer and he was very ha happy to help me with my homework. So having my in-house tutor and this wonderful teacher at the school, I was able to pass college algebra with an A, which I'm still very proud of. And I took a couple of other classes and then shut down my college experience until later when I tried to go back twice online and in person. And both times, once I got pregnant and then another time I had a child who needed to be homeschooled. And so I, I quit school and focused on that child. And so I've wanted to finish my degree. I've wanted to, to you know, finish what I started, but I just haven't quite had the opportunity yet. As a young mom, I knew that I wanted to homeschool my kids. And so as I was raising them when they were babies and toddlers, I networked with other moms in Boulder, Colorado, who were also planning to homeschool. Many of us were into natural family living. We were doing what's called attachment parenting, where we chose to raise our own babies instead of putting them in daycares or preschools or hiring nannies. And so it was wonderful to meet all these other moms who were also raising their children the same way and, and planning to homeschool because we had a network of moms. And over the years, I belonged to like 10 different homeschool support groups. And these friends were some of the best friends of my life, still are today. And we helped each other with curriculum choices. And um, sometimes we would get together and do things like have a science fair one time we actually put on a musical. I directed a musical. We would go camping with all of our families, Golden Gate Park. So we did these types of activities kind of to enrich what was happening in our own homes. But there came a day when my oldest daughter was kind of flailing with school. 
I had been seduced into the unschooling philosophy when she was young and believed that was good for her and for our family, and it really wasn't. She was floundering, feeling lost with her peers, who she crossed paths with in the neighborhood and at church. And I was like, she's getting everything she needs just from living. We're doing math while we cook, and we're, we're doing this and that here and there, and teaching her to read by reading with her every night. But we didn't do any specific curriculum. And so when she was in second grade, a thread opened up at the local elementary school. And what a thread is where a, a group of parents determine that they want to set up their own classes, their own curriculum, and hire their own teachers. These schools allowed them to do that one grade per school. So we had kindergarten through fifth grade. Each grade, the kids were allowed to matriculate from class to class with the same group of students using the same curriculum. And it was different than what Boulder Valley was doing. They were doing classic whole language and not font, not phonics, you know, just whole language and fuzzy math. And this is where I was introduced to Saxon math. This is the early 90s. Nancy Larson, who wrote Saxon math elementary textbooks, flew to Colorado to talk to the parents who were setting up this strand in our school. And the parents determined that this was the curriculum they wanted to use. And so my oldest daughter started using Saxon math number two in the second, second grade. And then as my second daughter and my son came in, they were also using the Saxon textbooks. And I loved them. I thought they were fabulous. When my oldest daughter was in fifth grade, we decided to pull the kids back home for a variety of reasons and homeschooled for a couple of years. And it was at this moment that we invested in the hardcover Saxon books. We bought Stephen Hake's element, uh, middle school books, and I bought the Saxon elementary books for my other two sons. And every day we did a Saxon lesson. And this was because I had read the essays by Art Robinson, who was a homeschooling father. He and his wife had a, a number of children, seven or eight children, and determined that they wanted to homeschool scientifically. They wanted to raise a family of mathematicians. And because math is the language of science, and Dr. Robinson was a scientist, he wanted to come up with this family who knew the language inside and out. And he chose the Saxon books for his curriculum. Right as they're about to get started, his wife died, and he was left alone with all these kids. And he was determined to fulfill the vision of what they had planned together. And so as a homeschooling father, single father, he dug in with all these kids and started teaching them himself. And then he wrote a series of essays that I read the year before we took our kids out of school. And it totally influenced me. I was so uh, astounded by what he had accomplished alone. And I thought, if he can do this alone, there's no reason why my husband and I can't do this as a team. And so we modeled our day after the Robinson day. We didn't do everything that he recommended, like get rid of the television and, you know, math six days a week, do it year round. We didn't do all that. That was too intimidating for us. But we tried to model our day after that ideal Robinson curriculum day. And what do you know? We come up with these great statistics my oldest daughter, when she took her eighth grade math test, which is required by Colorado law, 
she scored a perfect score when she got that. And the, the lady who adjudicated the test, she said, that's going to be really impressive to the district when they see those numbers. And it made me feel good. It was like, okay, we're having some success here. And then I gave birth to my youngest child around that same time. And when he was about four months old, I felt like I was drowning and that I could not carry on teaching my own. And so uh, we enrolled them at a charter school that did not use Saxon, but it was a good, good enough curriculum that they were all able to do well in university. And so my kids took their math, all five of my kids passed their college algebra on the first go round, which I'm very proud of as a homeschooling mom. I don't take the credit for that because although I laid the foundation with Saxon math, they definitely were taught well by the teachers at the charter school and public school here and there. And so I just feel like if you wanna do homeschool all the time, the Saxon curriculum is there for you. It works. It's amazing. And if you want children who go to college and on their first go around, take, take that college algebra class and pass it, that should be the goal of every parent who wants their kids to do higher level university work because that algebra class is the jumping off point to all of the higher math and university. And that was definitely the case with two of my sons who worked in their math labs as tutors. One uh, graduated in math and the other is now getting a doctorate in chemistry at the University of Michigan. And that solid foundation of math was the key. So for me, someone who has not been as math literate as you would hope in a homeschooling parent, um, we were able to come up with five kids who have done pretty well. And so that's my personal story around math. I don't have any degrees. I don't have any uh, real foundation in higher math with calculus and physics. I'm a musical theater person and I'm intimidated at even the idea of studying higher math, but maybe some point I'll, I'll turn to that. But Nikki, what do you think? Well, I'm just sitting here listening and thinking, um... You raised pretty good five kids, and sex and math was part of it. And I am so pleased that you told that part of the story. Good. Well, I hope it's helpful for other people. I know the homeschooling families I've known over the years, and I've talked to thousands of them online and in person, it's the math that really makes them nervous about taking on homeschool, especially high school math. And one of the things that I think John was really passionate about was they can learn right alongside the kids. Absolutely. Yeah. I was sitting here thinking that an awful lot of the times the, the people that the kids that I tutor are from homeschooling families who feel uncomfortable with math, starting with about the seventh grade, eighth grade, because they're not sure they're just uncomfortable with it because they weren't good at it necessarily when they were kids. So, yeah, it's important for the, the parents to realize one of the things John wanted to do when he wrote his textbooks was let the textbooks be able to teach the subject because he said an awful lot of teachers are also not taught how to teach basic math. Talk about. John felt passionate about writing a textbook 
that uh, parents and teachers would feel comfortable in using. And in fact, lots of times the book led the children while the teachers learned right along with them. Right. And they, they are so well written. People have joked, oh, the janitor could come in and teach this. Now. Yeah. <laughs> because they're, you know, they're so, so well written, so well put together. All right. Well, let's go ahead and kick off chapter three, which is titled A New Insight. And starting this new uh, chapter, I want to also add that the first eight chapters of the book tell John's personal life story. And then after that, the book gets his work as a author and publisher and warrior for math education. So we're on chapter three. When we get through with chapter eight, we'll be getting into the wartime John Saxon. Wonderful. Starting that's out. Definitely, that's definitely the heart of the book. But I feel like these biographical chapters add so much um, depth to the overall story that they're just a delight to read. Well, I'm not meaning to jump ahead, but now that I'm rereading the book, it's fun. And I have gone on to some, a few chapters ahead of this one. And as I read it, I thought, this really does tell how this man was a warrior. I mean, a full-fledged warrior. And the people on the other side who hated him so much had no idea what they were taking on when they decided to attack him. And these chapters help set up that scenario. So just want people to know if all these chapters are good and interesting, but they really do set a good foundation for what John Saxon became. So starting with this paragraph, after resigning his commission as a second lieutenant with the U.S. Army Air Corps and passing his entrance exams for West Point, John was sent to Massachusetts Amherst College in January 1945. He was 21 years old, the cutoff age for admission to the prestigious military institute. The new cadets were given new West Point uniforms called pinks and greens. The pants were actually a lavender color, he said. We thought we were just the neatest thing. He was to attend classes while awaiting his West Point assignment but he only attended 12 to 15 classes since they didn't check roll. So, so had what he determined was free time. Since he was a pilot, he did not have to keep up his flying time. He and other pilots would go to the nearby Westover base where he could fly as a co-pilot on a B-24. John didn't like that plane much, quote, because the wings flopped on it, unquote. The B-24s were used in Polizzi, Romania, and many got shot down. The cadets learned they could go 20 miles to Windsor Locks, where there was a BT-13. The base operations guy had a UC-78, that's a twin-engine prop plane. He gave us the instruction manual to read, but we didn't have any idea what we were doing. It's a wonder everybody in World War II didn't get killed. John drank whiskey and pretty much stayed drunk for three months, which included a time that a group of 15 or 20 of them rented the Phi Delta Theta sorority house for two months. We thought we were really big men. I'd wake up in the morning and have to choose between Southern Comfort and Old Granddad. 
we were totally out of control. In March, they moved him to, to the Westover Air Force Reserve Base in Springfield, Massachusetts. The West Point cadets had been moved to a barracks on the base, and since they didn't have much to do, they decided to go to West Point to see what it was like. We thought it all looked foolish, so we went out and got drunk. I can't believe the foolish things we did. Still not having much to do and seeing as how being an officer meant he wasn't checked on, he went to New York City. If in uniform, he could get a room at the Commodore Hotel for $3 a night. I went to a lot of shows in the theater. Then I found Leon and Eddie's nightclub, which had foul-mouthed comics. Daddy came up, and I took him there. He didn't think it was funny at all. I hadn't even realized they were foul-mouthed. Before July 1st, when he was to report to West Point, John went home for a week to see the family. When he arrived back at the new cadet area, he said that, quote, all hell broke loose, close quote. They were hollering and screaming, drop that bag, pick up that bag, drop that bag. The cadets had to run everywhere. He suddenly realized they were doing everything they could to make him quit. Quote, I'll see you bastards in hell before you make me quit, he said to himself. John said that being at West Point ultimately taught him about himself and that the experience had finally brought clarity to his life. I had cheated in high school. I cheated at the University of Georgia. I was an inveterate liar because for some reason I felt I was inadequate as a person. And when someone would ask me a question, I would answer as a little child would. I would try to please them. Word got out that you couldn't trust John Saxon because he wouldn't tell the truth. They told us about that honor system up there. I thought I was in the wrong place. I thought I was genetically a liar, cheat, and a thief because I had stolen some things. I just thought I was a bad person. They said they would throw us out if we didn't honor the system. I said I would see them in hell before they would throw me out. I knew they would have to catch me, and I would make it hard for them to do that. He added, For three years I was very careful not to cheat. I kept my eyes on my own paper, and I told the truth. Not because I wanted to, but I didn't want to get caught and thrown out. At the end of the second year, I found it wasn't hard to do because I had trained myself. One day I realized that people don't get mad at you for doing something wrong, but they'll never forgive you for lying about it. The new cadets, or plebes, were quartered at, in the beast barracks, four to a room. A fraternity mate of Kappa Alpha from the University of Georgia was with him along with a couple of other fellows. The last two weeks of the initial training, he was the room orderly because he was the only left in the room. The Georgia friend had worked at it, but he couldn't hack it physically because of his legs. A third guy was a combat soldier with a silver star, and he saw himself as being above the Mickey Mouse stuff. If a cadet wanted to leave, he checked into the hospital. Quote, the leaders wanted you away from everyone else so you couldn't talk others into leaving, close quote, he explained. The fourth cadet went to visit that roommate and decided to stay in the hospital, too. They gave us fits that first year, he said. He didn't wear his pilot's wings in order not to attract attention. An upperclassman challenged him 
for not wearing his wings, which John took as an insult. Mr. Saxon, I understand you won't wear Army Air Corps wings on a West Point uniform. John thought, you dumb SOB. Instead, he said, yes, sir. Once it was known John had pilot's wings, he said they jumped down his throat. Quote, the place was full of draft dodgers, so they wouldn't have to go to war. They stayed on my case. I had calls at all times. I was in some upperclassman's room in a brace, which is standing at attention, until graduation at the end of the year. For that graduation event, there was a recognition parade. An upperclassman came down the line to shake hands for the plebe's success in getting through the year. John shook about five hands and went back to the barracks. I was burned at them, he said. We had some mean upperclassmen. He remembered being hungry all the time that first year because of the eating formation they had to follow. Every time a bowl or other item was to be passed to upperclassmen, a plebe had to put down his eating utensil, and the bowls and items were being passed constantly. There was a time an upperclassman said they could have a pint of ice cream after dinner if they could do 15 push-ups with a full field pack. John said, I was skinny and wiry, but I could go and go. He got his ice cream. When the plebes went into nearby Watertown, townspeople would invite them into their homes for cookies and milk. We thought that was just wonderful. John didn't see the first year as being hard on him academically. However, I had a bad attitude about studying, he admitted, but I was able to pass because I was riding on my taking trig three times at the University of Georgia. Mimi had taught me Latin, and Mimi and Daddy had always insisted that I use correct English at home. Then came the sophomore year. He still wasn't studying much. I had figured if I studied more, I was playing their game. His chemistry finals brought a startling new challenge to this kind of thinking. The final lasted for four days, and he knew he couldn't pass it. I didn't have time to learn it. So I started memorizing the book three days before the exam. I couldn't understand the chemistry, but I could memorize the pages. John passed the final. Now it was time to face the 10-part calculus final that was given in sections every day for two weeks. He couldn't study for it because he didn't know calculus. He had made a D the first semester. John failed the second and third days of the final exam. I had ripped my knickers. I was going to flunk out of West Point. Evidently giving up, John went to the doctor the next day on a Thursday and told him about a cyst at the base of his spine that had bothered him since the previous summer. It was that doctor's first day at work, and he didn't know he had to have permission from the academic board to perform non-emergency surgery during final examinations. In retrospect, John said, you see, God wanted me to graduate from flying school and from West Point. I reckon he wanted me to write my mathematics books, even back then. The operation was to be the following day. They had to postpone the surgery until Monday, however, because there had been a big wreck on the highway, and all available medical help was needed for that. When the surgery was done on Monday, the doctor had to wire John's buttocks together 
and he was to remain on his stomach at all times to avoid the wire cutting through the flesh. He was in the hospital for about two weeks. He was then given two more weeks of sick leave. Here it was the end of his sophomore year, and he was getting two weeks of sick leave, plus the four-week leave he received at the end of each school year, a total of six weeks. On top of that, the calculus failure list came out, and his name was not on it. John said, I still can't believe all of this happened. He went home to Georgia for those summer days in 1947. Mechanical engineering reared its head in his junior year at West Point. John wondered what would happen if he really studied like the Billy Chickens, Dickens, he said. As he studied like the Billy Dickens, he moved up to the 12th section, then to the 3rd section, and finally the 2nd section. He wanted to see if he could stay there, and he did, even rising to the 1st section of students. Shaking his head as he tells this story, John said, I can't believe my mind worked this way, but I thought, I proved I can do this. So he quit studying. <laughs> yep. That was the end of the first semester. The academy said they were going to put the first three sections on an accelerated plan and at the end of the first six weeks of the spring semester. John was the bottom man in the, three, in the third section. During this junior year, he was one of two cadets to appear in a Hollywood movie being shot at West Point. Beyond Glory was filmed in September 1947, starring Alan Ladd and Donna Reed. During its premiere and at dinner at West Point on July 28, 1948, a ceremony was staged during which John was given a special quote, Academy Award, close quote, by his classmates, called the Dumb John. He was given a special Academy Award by his classmates called the Dumb John. It was a statue of a uniquely designed military uniformed figure given out each year. Beyond Glory made its Georgia premiere in September 1950 without Lieutenant John Saxon Jr. in attendance who by that time was stationed at Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma. Extracurricular activities at West Point left a major impression on John. Every cadet had to play either an intramural sport or a team sport. He remembered a special young man with red hair who had never played a sport, but the first time he played in the intramurals, he made a tackle. Everyone was yelling, way to go! By the end of the season, he had made 20 to 30 tackles and had become accustomed to, way to go. John said, you can't believe the difference those intramurals made to that young man. Because of that experience with intramurals, John became a fan of those over varsity sports in high schools and colleges. Too few get to play in varsity sports, he said. The young red-haired man was killed in Korea his first year out of West Point. John got his own short claim to fame when he substituted for a goalie who was late to the game. They discovered the opponents couldn't get shots past John, and he became the, quote, first team, unquote, intramural goalie for the game. When they realized he was body blocking the shots, the other team figured out how to play around him. 
his team lost. John seemed to relish telling about the superintendent of West Point from 1945 to 1949, Major General Maxwell Taylor, who was quite an athlete and an avid tennis player. He had required Cadet Charlie Oliver to play tennis matches with him. Charlie was a sixth-ranked player in the U.S. men's singles, and General Taylor told Charlie that he was to beat him as badly as he could. John thought that said a lot about General Taylor. General Taylor was seen as a god by the cadets, mainly because of his exploits during World War II. He had been the first Allied commander to land in France on D-Day and was commander of the 101st Airborne Division. When it was surrounded in Bastog Bastogne, mm -hmm. right. at the Battle of the Bulge, General Taylor was at a staff meeting in Washington, D.C. and I, unable to be with his men in that battle. He was quoted as saying that was his greatest personal disappointment during World War II. John thought the following story was also illustrative of General Taylor's special brand of leadership. To stop the complaining of his airborne troops who didn't like having to wear regular combat boots in parades, General Taylor called for a parade formation. He then climbed into a C-47 airplane, was flown over the field, and parachuted out with slippers, no boots, on his feet. As he came down, the slippers came off, and he landed in his socks. To his startled men, he said, Gentlemen, I never want to hear another complaint about landing in combat boots. Pass in review. For John, General Taylor was the best kind of general officer. He was literate, great public speaker, and a wonderful superintendent for West Point. Of really special importance to the cadets was the fact that General Taylor had designed the short coat and class shirt, so cadets didn't have to wear the uncomfortable high-collar shirts to class. John's senior year went by quickly. They got insignia and ranks to put on their uniforms. The best students were made class officers. He wondered if the academics at West Point are much higher now than when he was there. We were in class three or four hours a day and then were involved with military training. He said, but he was able to take French even though he wanted Spanish and became fairly fluent in the language. It was during those four years that the maturing John found a life of new meaning and clarity. We learned about being responsible for our actions and not playing favorites. That's the reason so many West Point graduates do so well, by doing the right thing. They really do believe in duty, honor, and country. We got through college without going out and getting drunk. I had to have that structured environment or I wouldn't have done anything they asked. They gave me a good education in spite of my recalcitrance. When Mimi, his father, and Anne arrived for his West Point graduation, they went to Lookout Point with its vista of the academy grounds. Mimi said, I don't see how anybody could be unhappy in a place this pretty. John said he teared up and apologized to his mother for graduating at the bottom of his class. Mimi asked him how many had started in his class with him. He responded, about 1,200. She asked how many finished the program. 
About 560, he replied. That means you're in the top half of your class, she said. I love that. Yeah. Don maintained throughout his life that if it hadn't been for Mimi, he would have been in, he would have been dead or in jail. Even in 1995, during his oral videotape histories, he wondered why he had developed such a bad attitude as a young person, including his first year at West Point. After his graduation, he couldn't believe it was real. I was free. But for the next two or three years, I was afraid they'd come back and get me. <laughs> what a way to finish it. Yeah, yeah. Good story. Good story. I mean, when you when you realize that John, when he was in the first grade and he was so upset with the teacher who lied to him, and he really disliked so much adults who were dishonest, and then for him to turn this way as a young person, and then West Point gave him life. It just gave him. That's why all money for his books go to West Point, to the math department, in memory of John Saxon. That's so great, Nikki. I bet you've donated a bundle to him over the many years you've had your book available. Well, so, it's enough. Yeah, you were going to talk to Stephen Hake this week. Were you able to connect with him? Not, no, I've been really surprised. So I thought if I hadn't heard from him by this weekend, because normally Stephen answers me immediately. So something has gotten him sidetracked. So I will, I will get a hold of him this week somehow. Great. All right. Well, thank you, Nikki Hayes, for your time. Chapter three is a wrap. I will get it up as soon as possible, and we will continue next week. Good. Look forward to it, Jenny. This is so exciting. I love it. I just love it. Thank you for including me. Oh, it's my honor. Here is our jingle to say goodbye. I hope everyone has a wonderful week. <laughs>